family, Albert Tate Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Listen, so excited about this season. I hope you've been enjoying The Waiting Room. I hope you've been encouraged. I hope you're uh, learning how to navigate seasons that are marked with waiting, seasons that are marked with uh, disappointment and frustration. Um, and I hope, I just hope you're being encouraged. Listen, today, yo, today, 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 yo, this episode is just bananas. I'm just going to tell you that right now. If you've never heard of Dr. Nicholas Pierce, get ready. Uh, he runs uh, North Uni- Northern Uni- Northwestern University Kellogg School of Management. He's a pastor. He's an author. He's got a book out. We're going to talk about all of that. We have a great conversation. We talk about capacity. We talk about identity, your purpose. But we also talk about the waiting room. And he drops some bombs about the waiting room that are just gold nuggets. You don't want to miss it. So today, helping me talk about the the lock the uh, helping me talk about the waiting room uh, is Dr. Nicholas Pierce. Get ready. It's a powerful interview. Hope you're enjoying the season. Thanks so much for tuning in. Check it out. My interview with Dr. Pierce. Sit down. Grab some paper. Grab a pen. You gonna you need to take notes because we're going to school today. Because my special guest today is associate professor of management and organizations at Northwestern University. He's also the assistant pastor of Chicago Apostolic Church of God. My man, Doctor Pierce, Doctor Nicholas Pierce. How you doing, bro? I'm doing well, Pastor Tate. How are you? I'm doing so good, man. So excited to have you on the podcast, to get to know one another a little bit, just even just doing a little research, just seeing um, God's hand on your life and all that he's doing. Also, uh, at the Kellogg School of Management, uh, founder and chief executive officer of the, what is this, the Volcata Group? Did I say it right? Volcati, you got it. Volcati Group, yeah. So just accomplished. So Dr. Pierce, welcome to the program. I think I just want to start by just getting to know you a little bit. Tell me a little bit about the uh, Volcati uh, group. Uh, tell me a little bit about the work that you do at the Kellogg School of Management. Well, again, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's a joy to talk with you. Um, I am from the south side of Chicago and have the unique privilege of operating in three lanes, as you mentioned. One is I serve as assistant pastor of our church in Chicago, Apostolic Church of God. The church in which I grew up, uh, almost a 90-year-old congregation. Oh, wow. Um, and we've been on the south side uh, of the city doing ministry, and the church has grown in phenomenal ways. And now the church is somewhere around 12,000 members. Hmm. Um, so I get to serve in the church in which I grew up, which has unique opportunities and unique challenges. I can only um, imagine. I can it, only imagine. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> At Northwestern University... Uh, I serve on the faculty at the Kellogg School of Management, uh, and that is where I teach uh, our MBA students. Mm. I teach executive MBA students as well as executives in all sectors who are coming for certificate programs. We talk about any number of topics related to leadership and organization, from influence to negotiation strategy to decision-making to building healthy teams to organizational culture, to diversity and inclusion. Uh, And I was actually blessed to be able to co-found a program there called Kellogg Faith and Leadership Week, uh, which is a four-day long program we run every year for pastors and leaders of faith communities 
to come together to learn the things about running complex organizations that seminary did not teach. Oh, wow. So at Kellogg, I'm able to stand right at that intersection of faith and the marketplace and the academy to mold the future leaders of industry, of nonprofit. We even had clergy who have done their MBAs, government leaders, uh, but also uh, be able to impact the world of practice, whether it's pastors and leaders of denominations or executives of Fortune 100 companies or nonprofit leaders from across the world who come to us as uh, their management uh, education provider of choice. Hmm. And then the Vokadi Group is an organization that I started uh, almost eight years ago, and this is uh, an organization that allows us to conduct many of our consulting activities. So oftentimes we're called upon by leaders of denominations, we're called upon by leaders of corporations, nonprofits, um, to come in and help with executive advising. Uh, we do executive coaching, we do keynotes, retreats, strategic planning, a lot of the things that uh, leaders need to be able to move their organizations to greater levels of effectiveness. Hmm. Wow. Uh, Dr. Pierce, are you 68 years old? Good. I am currently 34. Good Just a couple Lord. years behind you, man. Have mercy. <laughs> all right. Well, I got 20 million questions now already. Bro, first of all, that's amazing. And I love the, um, the, the thread um, and the theme of your life. And it, it, is, it is equipping and empowering leaders um, and also yes, a strong commitment to empowering the leadership of the Church of Jesus Christ. So first of all, bro, that's amazing. I love that. Um, tell me about, you talked about your life in three lanes. Tell me how, as a 34-year-old, you identify those three lanes and are able to, with confidence and clarity, know that that's the, where the calling of your life lands in uh, capturing those distinctions. So certainly this is not something I had all figured out when I was growing up, going to career days and things and you know, answering mm -hmm. the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm -hmm. um, I did know I was called to ministry when I was seven years old. Wow. But the pastor of our church at that time, the legendary Bishop Arthur Brazier, um, he was in his 70s. So I didn't really have a picture or model of what younger people in ministry looked like. So I didn't think of it as a career possibility. Um, I actually went to undergrad and studied chemical engineering. I didn't even think that ministry was an option in terms of uh, a career at that stage. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I was called to ministry when I was seven. When I was growing up, the object of the game was to get good grades so you can get into a good college or university, so you can get a good major, get a good degree, yeah. so you can get a good job. Yeah. And I was good at math and I was good at chemistry, so I went to MIT to study chemical engineering. And sophomore year, I discovered I didn't care about chemical and biological systems the way I cared about people and organizational systems. Wow. So that began this pivot in my heart and in my mind, and I needed my education to not just prepare me for a career, but to prepare me for calling. Hmm. And so I was able to, with a lot of assistance from the advisors I had at MIT, craft a degree program that allowed me to get out with a chemical engineering degree. But also I was able to take an extensive number of classes at Harvard Divinity School. I was also able to do quite a bit of work at MIT's School of Management, the Sloan School, 
And there I worked with a professor who let me do some research with him, and he opened my eyes to this whole world of organizational behavior and understanding not just how to lead well, but how organizations work, how they function, and why they function the way they do. And that completely rocked my world. He said, you write well, you ask good questions, you should consider a PhD in management. And after a bit of wrestling, off I went to Northwestern where I did my PhD in management and organization. And even then I wrestled with, did I want to go into the academy? Did I want to be only in the church? Did I want to go into industry? Yeah. Uh, and long story short, uh, through a series of mentoring conversations, some that were really difficult, some that were unexpected, um, I landed on this hybrid where I'm a clinical professor there, which uh, does not afford me the same status and standing uh, in terms of compensation as my tenure track colleagues. It allows me to teach and to do public scholarship, but it also affords me the space to serve our church as assistant pastor. Mm -hmm. And it also allows me to do the work I do in the marketplace uh, as a consultant and executive advisor. It gave me the space to write a book. It has given me the space to uh, travel all over the world, not only preaching, but also conducting leadership training uh, for leaders in all sectors. Uh, and these things I would not have been able to accomplish had I gone down the path of least resistance. So long story short, this was not a, a very clear picture when I was even in college. And mm. it has emerged and developed as I've taken steps in faith. Wow. I've, I've tried my best to learn how the Holy Spirit leads and try to just be obedient one decision at a time. And in so doing, the Lord has literally blown my mind uh, with opportunities and platforms um, that I would not have even prayed for. Here I am mm. talking to the pastor, Albert Tate, <laughs> uh, and who would have known that I'd be doing this, right? Wow. So it, it, it's a really just a testimony to the faithfulness of God and just trying to trust him one step at a time. Yeah, I love that, man. Um, wow. Faith in God, trust in God. What I love about your story, uh, Dr. Pierce, is also the the discerning process. So I think there are a lot of people who are listening um who are trying to navigate and discern and they probably feel like I'd imagine they feel like they're all over the place kind of swinging, they got gifts, they got talents, they're good at this, good at that. Tell me about the discerning process. You mentioned you alluded to the hard conversations a little bit. Tell me about what that looked like in some of those hard conversations and some of the wrestling you had to do as you landed your identity pieces? Yeah. So everybody wants to a certain extent to make their proteges like them, mm. right? There is a very strong desire to imprint those who you are discipling, whether it's professionally or spiritually, you want them to sort of be like you. So everywhere I was getting advice about basically what to be when I grow up, People were telling me to choose, mm. either choose the church or choose the academy or choose the marketplace. It can't be all of the above because people have this idea that focus requires singularity mm. and in anything that um, is taking on multiple avenues or lanes is just not going to be excellent in the spaces where they're, they're trying to occupy. 
So I had to wrestle with people who wanted me to basically correct the mistakes that they felt they had made themselves. Um, I had people who were wanting me to pick a side. And that was perhaps the toughest part because the academics wanted me to be an academic. The pastors wanted me to go to divinity school. I mean, er everybody wanted me to be what they wanted me to be. And I knew God had called me to more, even though I did not have a blueprint or a template for this. Um, But one conversation I think is is what stand out most to me. Uh, It's a conversation I had with my doctoral advisor, Kathy Phillips. She's now at Columbia Business School. She sat me down one day and she said, Nicholas, you write well, you're making good progress through the program. You're going to make a great professor one day, but I've seen you preach on television too. Mm-hmm. You're an amazing preacher and you know that you are called to do both. When are you going to admit that to yourself? Wow. Right. Wow. This is a professor in the academy who's a believer who was willing to have a spiritual conversation with me where I was not expecting any spiritual conversation. Mm. And that was when it dawned on me that you've got to be able to bring your faith with you into the workplace and you can't partition what you do on Sunday from what you do Monday through Friday, because even for the most saved and sanctified among us, we're spending more time in the workplace than we're doing in the church. Yeah. Right? And I believe God doesn't just care about how we lift our hands on Sunday. I, I believe God cares also about how we extend our hands Monday through Friday to others in our daily work. Yeah. I don't think our daily work is inconsequential to God. I mm. really believe that God uses the places where we're planted in our daily work as mission fields. Mm. And so that conversation I had with Kathy, not only helped me recognize that I could not partition my life, but I had to stand in both worlds, but not toggling back and forth. I had to stand in both worlds at the same time. Yeah. I don't leave my soul in the parking lot when I go to teach. Yeah. I don't leave my brain in the parking lot when I go to preach. Mm. I've got to show up as me because that's the only me I've got. And it was that one conversation that, of course, in the context of many others, and lots of prayer and reflection and wrestling, got me to a place now where I am comfortable where I am, even though there are trade-offs in terms of status and compensation. And, yeah. you know, for some people in church, I'm too businessy. And for some people in business, I'm too churchy. Like th- there are all these trade-offs that come with standing at this intersection. But I am clear as ever, uh, as we talk right now, that God has me exactly where I'm supposed to be. Wow. Wow. The other thing I'm hearing you say also, Dr. Pierce, is that, you found a way to carve out a space in each of those industries, in those institutions to be the same person when you walk in the room. I think that's the other dynamic that's at play. People feel like when I go in this space, I've got to become an altered version of myself to exist in that space. And then when I'm here, I've got to become another altered version of myself. It's kind of like me when I navigate multi-ethnic spaces, if I'm at a predominantly white church like a Willow Creek of the world or at a Faithful Central, which is a phenomenal African-American, one of the largest African-American churches in Southern California, uh, Inglewood, Dr. Uh, Bishop Kenneth Homer. Am I a whiter version of myself when I go over here? Am I a blacker version over here? And then when I go to uh, the podcast or the other entities, how do I how do I get myself the same person and be the same person as I walk into each space. And it sounds like a part of the negotiations and the part of the shifts 
And a part of that is you being able to be the same person. Because I think some people hear, they hear three different lanes, they hear all of this stuff, and they think there's no way you can do that well. We haven't talked about family and stuff like that, but as you think about your right. own personal life and managing that, how do you show up in all of these spaces? And I think people assume you've got to be where this hat over here, where that hat, and, and, and in some sense you kind of are, but in, 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 a, in a bigger way, you're really just the same person authentically drawing from the same well is just different elements right. and different, and you just have different deliverables. Does that make sense? Do you identify with that at all? I, I completely agree. You're drawing from the same well. I don't hide who I am, right? Yeah. So the fact that I'm a pastor, professor, an executive advisor is something that people know in the church space and know in the academic space and know in the marketplace. So I don't, I don't hide that. Yeah. Furthermore, um, this, this idea of having to wear masks and toggling back and forth between the version of you that you think somebody wants to see Mm. is really inauthentic and it is emotionally and cognitively and spiritually taxing. Yes. Um, I'm not saying that we don't have to have a degree of ad- adaptation in terms of our communication style For sure. in order to be effective. Yes. Certainly we can adapt our communication style to fit the needs of the moment. Yes. But there's a difference between adapting your communication style and leaving a part of yourself, a central core part of yourself outside just to be able to pass as acceptable to a group. I have over time recognized that to a certain extent, uh, what it feels like God has given me to do is a prophetic ministry, not a prophetic ministry of walking up to people and laying hands on them and saying, you know, thus say the Lord God, but really a ministry that is calling the church to stand up wherever they are mm. and calling people to reckon with the fact that God is real. And in a time where they will not come and hear me in a church, I will go out to them in a marketplace. Yes. And because of my credentials, they will give me an honest hearing and then wonder about what makes them so different. Hmm. Right. So it it really is about boldly showing up in spaces, not for the sake of shock and awe, but recognizing that the platform comes with an assignment. Hmm. And if you cower down to placate people, you have failed the assignment and God can't trust you with the platform. Doc, you're preaching doc. Oh, that's so good. Oh my goodness. Now, I'm sure you you asked the question, man, bro, that is so, (laughs) so good because so many people, I think that people really, really wrestle with that. And I feel like they really struggle with being able to consistently align and integrate their purpose, Uh, which which leads me to the book you just wrote. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. And I think we're kind of in the neighborhood of it. Right. Absolutely. So the name of my first book uh, is entitled The Purpose Path. So this is your first book. A Guide book. to first Pursuing time. Your Authentic Life's Work. Yep, oh, this is book number go. one, book number only. Um, a Guide to it. Pursuing uh, your, your Life's Authentic uh, per- your, Work? Right, your, your Authentic Life's Work. That's right. That's beautiful. That's um, beautiful. And it's really designed for people at all ages and at all life stages to wrestle with questions of calling and vocation and what it is that God would have them to do with their life. Mm. Um, I don't give a whole lot of prescriptions in the book because the whole idea of navigating the journey of purpose 
looks very different to a 20-something than it does to an 80-something. Yeah. Um, the millennials are trying to figure out how do I launch well, what educational opportunities, what career opportunities might I need to pursue. Mm. Uh, people who are Gen Xers, right, who are in their 40s and 50s are wrestling with, did I do the right things the right way? Have I been not only successful in climbing this ladder, but was I climbing the right ladder at all? And if not, might I need to pivot? What are the costs associated with that courageous move? Wow. Or even people who are in the third third of their lives, who society is largely putting out to pastures, and your time has come and gone, you're in the way, step aside. Yet they're saying, I've got financial capital that still works. I've got human capital. My brain still works. I've got social capital. My network still works. I've got spiritual capital. My soul still works, yet society is pushing me to the side. Is there any purpose in the years that God has given me? My spouse has passed. My friends are passing away. I might have even had to bury a child. God, why are you taking all the people around me, yet you've left me here? Is there Mm. any purpose in these years? So if you start giving prescriptions to people and saying, follow these five steps and you'll be happy at the end, um, that does not account for the discontinuities and disequilibrium that God uses in our lives to actually pull us in the direction of purpose, but also reveal meaningful moments of purpose on the journey. Yeah. So yeah. the book is organized around five questions that are designed to guide prayerful reflection, to give people the gift of connecting with their caller first, and then receiving the gift of calling. Hmm. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. And they can pick that book up on Amazon? You can get that book in hard copy, ebook, or audio book, wherever books are sold. That's what I'm talking about. We everywhere. We all over the world, baby. Everywhere. Let's go. <laughs> we, out, we out here. <laughs> Man, this season, um, we, we have themes uh, with our podcast, and the theme for this, uh, for this uh, season um, is the waiting room. And I've been talking a mm-hmm. lot about the season of life when you find yourself inevitably in God's waiting room Um, through different circumstances and situations, seasons when you find yourself waiting for the next season to be revealed, waiting for the next thing or a season of suffering, a season of pain, a season of, you alluded to it, disruption and how God uses disruption usually to usher us into some of the deepest places of our purpose. Could you tell me a little bit about um, what you've learned about God's waiting room um, and some Lord, encouragement and lessons that you benefited from while being in the waiting room of God. Lord have mercy. Um, <laughs> the waiting room is in an uncomfortable place. Yes, and yes. we can quote all the scriptures about waiting on the Lord and being of good courage and you know waiting mm-hmm. on the Lord and renewing our strength, you know, all the things. But waiting is frustrating. Yeah. Particularly when you have a sense of where you're trying to, to get. Um, when, I, when I fly back home from you name the location, um, we get back to Chicago. One of my least favorite parts is when we go out over Lake Michigan hmm. and then we curl back toward O'Hare Airport and then we go back out over the lake and then we come back to the airport. We're close, but we won't land. Hmm. The pilot comes on and says, this is the captain speaking. Uh, we're approaching Chicago. We're in our initial descent, uh, but we're in a holding, holding pattern. pattern. There's too yes. much air traffic around O'Hare Airport. 
and we're going to circle so you can see where we're going. It's coming into focus, but you can't get there. I can look out the airplane and see my house, mm. but I cannot jump down. Mm. Um, and it's frustrating. Uh, and, and to a certain extent, I feel like I'm in a waiting room now, even though the Lord is doing all these wonderful things that we've talked about, mm-hmm. I still find myself in a bit of a waiting room. But what I have found is that the waiting room has meaning, which is why I called the book The Purpose Path mm. and not The Purpose Destination. Mm. A lot of people think that purpose is just in the final result. And yes, all things do work together for the good of them who love God and are called according to its purpose. But... I also believe that there's meaning on the way. When you think about the ministry of Jesus, mm. right? Jesus was on his way to Jairus' house, and this woman with the issue of blood comes up and touches the hem of his garment and is healed while he's on his way. Jesus mm. is on his way. Blind Bartimaeus calls out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Peter and John, on their way to the temple, encounter a man by the gate called Beautiful, and the man is healed in the name of Jesus Christ. Hmm. Jesus has shown us through the Word of God that on the way, in unintentional moments, great and small, that God is working. Wow. And if we can be patient enough and confident enough in God and in the timing of God to not rush out of the waiting room, we won't deliver prematurely Hmm. and have our gifts take us in places where our character and conviction can't keep us. So I am, even in this season uh, of being in a waiting room in many respects, uh, I, I have resigned myself in my soul, not out of desperation, but out of necessity to mm. trust God, because he's showing me in the waiting room mm. that there are things he wanted to do in me, for me, through me, around me, that had I accelerated through this season, mm. I would not have been able to, to appreciate and, and truly value. Mm. So it's painful. It doesn't make it any less painful. Like all these realizations and revelations don't make the weight less painful, but they do make it more meaningful. Wow. Wow. He's, he's doing something on the way. And I love the, <laughs> I love the list of receipts you provided, uh, Peter. Yeah, man. Uh, the, I mean, the, the preacher has to bring receipts. Doc, you brought some receipts, and I think that's so helpful because I think what we don't understand about the waiting room is the waiting room actually is camouflage for the preparation room. Um, it feels like the waiting room, but I think what we discover, usually on the other side of deliverance, to be honest, is that it was actually a mm-hmm. preparation room. It was getting me ready for what I did not know what was coming. And to be honest, if God would have told me what was coming, I probably would have messed it up. So the the, no surpri- the surprise and, and the lack of disclosure is necessary because of my maturity or my immaturity, because the stuff that I'm doing now, I either would doubt it, I wouldn't believe it, or I wouldn't even want it because he hadn't even built the desire in me yet. So being in his presence and being prepared gets me ready to even desire what he's about to give me and what he's about to deliver to me. So the on the way is big because on the way is preparation for what he's getting ready to do. Don't skip the process. No doubt. Anytime God calls us to something, um, there is first a call to preparation. Mm. Even Jesus 
coming out of the baptismal waters is sent into the wilderness, um, not to heal the sick and raise the dead, but into the wilderness. Paul has this powerful conversion experience on the road to Damascus. He doesn't pop up and say, okay, Jesus, let's write Ephesians. He goes to Arabia for yeah. a minute. Yeah. He's prepared, right? Um, he was sent by Christ. He was sent by God um, into a season of isolation and preparation. Mm. And I believe that while isolation is dark and while it's lonely and while by its very definition feels forsaken, if you can endure it, back mm. to your waiting room point, if you can endure the waiting room, you're preparing not just your skills, um, but you're also preparing your heart. Yeah. Um, there's a difference between giftedness and excellence, and you can be gifted and called, but not be good yet. Yeah. All right. And in that 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 space of preparation, whether it's theologically, whether it is scientifically, right, from a ministry perspective or from a marketplace perspe- perspective, yeah. getting mentored, working on smaller projects, having to humble yourself and take the the back seat, the low seat, whatever it may be. God is using it. Yeah. I think another thing that you called out, and I think it's something that you and I both can identify with, is to be to to be gifted and to have it recognized and acknowledged and confirmed early in life. Um, you don't get accomplished the way that you are and not have a a gift about you. And um, humbly, I, I I can say God has given me a gift. That's that's I don't I don't I ain't got a t shirt announcing that everywhere I go. But uh, the reality right. is God God has given me gifts. But here's the thing: those gifts, if you rely on them to carry you, they can cause you to deliver prematurely, like you said earlier. And the gifts can get you access to stages that your ca- your character can't keep you on. So my gifts yep. got me here, but I don't have the character. So I'm under, I'm over, I consider myself overcooked or well done externally in gifts, but internally I'm medium rare, undercooked, underdeveloped. Yep. And how do I sit in the waiting room and get that fully processed? One of the worst things that can happen, and I don't know if you've, if you've seen this, one of the worst things that can happen is you acknowledge your giftedness, but be naive to your soul and character development that has to happen on the inside and walk in stuff that you really ain't ready for. My Lord, there's a word there. Um, when you have been overexposed by virtue of your gifts, but That's underdeveloped it. on the inside. That's what I'm saying. Um, That's at least it. To, ship, to shipwreck. And you take people with you, especially in the spirit. Mm. Um, I mean, it's bad if you're an accountant and, you know, you just try to bite off more than you can chew on somebody's taxes and you just mess them up. You just fix it. Yeah. But when, when it comes to the work of the gospel ministry, oh, it is even more sensitive. Yeah. Right. Because you are influencing someone's soul. Um, you're not holding their soul. God holds our souls, but yeah. you are certainly influencing the maturation and the discipleship and the spiritual formation of other people. Yeah. And if you don't know what you're doing, it would be better to have a seat. Uh, I mean, we, I, we deal with this at our church all the time. Our church uh, has about 200 associate ministers who are a part of our congregation. Mm. And for a period of about five years, I was blessed to have the opportunity to provide leadership to them. And so when speaking with them, a lot of them would be antsy to preach or antsy to serve, or Mm -hmm. I want to 
do this or that, which is oftentimes be seen. Um, and it's not a, a negative statement about any of their character. It's just the way that church has been set up now to be this very much personality-driven kind of consumeristic marketplace. Yep, yep. It's a platform. Um, and it's a platform. It's yep. a, exactly. It's a platform. And so I'm saying, listen, I care more about your spiritual growth and your discipline so that when you get the mic, you don't embarrass yourself and embarrass your God and embarrass this church. Come on. Yes. All right. Spend this time preparing. And if you really believe that God has called you to preach, um, can you go with us to the homeless shelter? Can you go with us to the nursing home? Come on. We go every week. Come on. Um, and if they were just like, well, no, God's called me to preach in that pulpit right there in front of, you know, 40,000 households on television, it gives me a sense of what your motive is, which yeah. is probably why uh, the microphone is not coming into your hands, because yeah. God loves his bride. Christ loves his bride so much that he will keep you out of a position where you'll kill her. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so that's, I'm with um, you all the way. That's awesome. That's speak a little bit about um, why we're encouraging people in the waiting room. James, I was just sitting with someone, and it's so so good that you use the holding pattern uh, illustration. Uh, James also warns against grumbling in this season, and when he says this, their Jewish minds would have had to go back to their ancestors who got detoured on a forty year journey because of grumbling um, and just the danger of grumbling in this season um, and the juxtaposition between a grumbler and someone who expresses gratitude, even in the midst of frustration. Could you speak to that just a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's hard. That, that's one of the things you can only learn from the waiting room. You don't learn patience from, from microwaving everything. You, yeah. you learn patience from slow cooking everything and looking at it and thinking, is this thing ever going to cook? Right. I and mean, that's the only way to get it. Um, grumbling in the process I have learned through my own grumbling at moments yeah. is that it is, it's counterproductive. It extends the amount of time that you're going to be there and it makes the journey less enjoyable. Mm. Um, so to a certain extent, your posture through the process is your choice. Um, and grumbling and complaining to a certain extent betray a lack of confidence and trust in God. Yeah. God, I don't believe you're sovereign. God, I'm walking by sight and not by faith. God, your timing is not perfect. Your ways are actually lower than mine. Can I help mm. you figure this out, please? Mm. Um, I think I have a shortcut. Um, and so he says, you know what, I'll take you the long route in the wilderness and I'm going to have you walk this way mm. so that I can prove you so I can get some stuff out of you. That's not going to serve you well where I'm taking you. Cause you're going to get the promise and, and fumble it. Yeah. I'm going to also prove myself to you because the way you're acting, you don't really believe that I am who I say I am. So mm. I'm going to have to set up some situations in, in your journey to reveal to you who I am, and the only way I can reveal myself to you in particular ways is to set up particular needs that I can meet, right? And then thirdly, he's also trying to prove who he is in your life to those around you, mm. people who are going to need to be able to rely on the fact that, God, that God's hand is on you, how you do in the process 
can actually be instructive and informative. I believe firmly that if you can make God look good as you're going through, God will make you look good when he brings you out. Yeah. Cue the organ. Yes. Cue the organ. Oh, Doc, I love it, man. You may not have uh he you may not have authority over the pro over the timing of the process, but you have control over your posture in the midst of oh, the yeah. process. There are no uh, my uh friend and mentor Brian Loritz says there are no microwaves in God's waiting no, room. Sir. There are only crock pots. That's it. Um and and I love that. Oh, Doc, we we got to do a part two. We got to do this again. This is so rich, man. Um, thank you so much for taking some time. Uh, go out and get the book Purpose Path um, by Dr. Pierce. I'm telling you, it'll bless you. Um, and I just want to encourage you out there, if you're in the waiting room, um, consider your posture. Um, consider consider the grumbling versus gratitude, um, because how you walk in the process uh, shapes how God brings you out uh, of the process. Um, and attitude is everything. But but attitude that's shaped by perspective of God. Yeah. So not an attitude adjustment just because you don't need to have a bad attitude. No, an attitude that's shaped by your perspective's altitude, your ability to look up to the hills from which cometh your help and to see that show enough, your help is coming from the Lord yeah. and allowing that reality to shape your attitude is everything in this season. So we ain't we ain't saying be in denial about the reality. No, no. no, acknowledge it and say, yeah, I'm not trying to minimize your problem, but I'm trying to help you maximize your God. Yeah. He's bigger than the problem. Dr. P Reverend Doctor, we got to do this again, man. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Anytime, Pastor. God bless you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Albert Tate Podcast. To stay connected, make sure to subscribe to the Albert Tate channel, rate and review this episode, and make sure to share on your social media platforms. You can follow along with Albert on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Once again, thank you for tuning in to this week's episode, and we'll see you next time.